Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show stockholm art museum robbed of four million dollars in artwork 10 under arrest that's the on top of the title of the book, Heist, an inside look at the world's 100 greatest heists, cons, and capers by my good friend Pete Stegermeyer. Pete, why'd you write this book? I know we've talked about heists before on the podcast. I know you're fascinated by it, but tell us again. Oh, man. So I I actually, I, I didn't plan on writing a book at first. I... I just really enjoyed doing my podcast. And then uh, the publisher found my podcast, said this would make a great book. And then we came up with a plan to uh, basically turn it into uh, kind of like a like a daily reader kind of thing. So it's not it's not the kind of book that you uh, you know read through in one sitting. But I just it was fun to get to tell the story in a different medium of like some of my favorite heists and and uh, scams and things like that. It's a great read. I mean, so many interesting things. And I'm curious, right? Okay. I want to talk about some of these heists in particular, but, uh, and, and your heists include bank robberies, robberies of artwork, of diamonds, of books, even Bitcoin, of course, everybody talks about Bitcoin heist, but if you were going to do a heist today, what would you do? Cause I feel a bank is too difficult to rob. I think a bank is too difficult and also cash is too heavy. Like you're gonna get winded carrying even like a hundred thousand dollars in cash. Wait, are you out of shape, Pete? Like a hundred thousand dollars? That's ten stacks of ten thousand dollars, and each stack is a hundred a hundred dollar bills. 
So, so maybe not a hundred thousand, but if you, if you're like talking like a duffel bag full of cash, that's yeah. I mean, you fill a duffel bag with newspaper, that's going to be uh, more than you want to carry around. So, for that, I would I feel like diamonds are probably the easiest way to go. Um, but I guess if I could do my dream heist, I would I would rob a Freeport, um, like probably like one of the ones in like Geneva or something like that. What what's that? What's a Freeport? So freeports are, they're kind of like a, a legal gray area and they're these giant like warehouses. They're insanely secure, but they're basically areas where the ultra wealthy can store like artwork and kind of like imagine safe deposit boxes, but at an airport and, you know, they're the size of, you know, office buildings or rooms like, and this allows like the wealthy people to really use them as tax dodges because if you buy a painting for $10 million and you just keep it in the Freeport, technically like they, there's ways of, there's ways of like doing that so that like you never actually pay the tax on it. And so you just kind of sit there and it stores a value. You can sell it again at the Freeport to somebody else that just keeps it in their Freeport. And so there's like billions of dollars in art and jewelry and all sorts of things that just sit in these Freeports where um, you know, all these masterpieces are basically nothing, but they're they're kind of like NFTs at that point. And I guess the beauty of it is, is that they're already engaging in illegal activity because they're not reporting the transactions. So they're avoiding taxes. So it's hard for them to like call the police if they're robbed. Exactly. And because they're technically, like they have like special jurisdiction, they're typically on international airports. So sometimes... Uh, you can get around like jurisdiction issues like that as well because it's very hard to to go in and it, because it's considered part of in transit because it's still at the airport. So okay, let's let's plan this heist right now. So I'm trying to. Be, there's free ports in the United Kingdom. There's a lot of free ports in the UK. Uh, there's all these maps for them. Let's say we're going to pick some random one. There's one in Plymouth, in the location of Plymouth. The port's called the free port's called Devonport. But how would you know who, which which parts of the Freeport have like a lot of uh, like art like expensive artwork or whatever? So so typically for something like that, you might want to try um, renting space in a Freeport. I see. So you have access and your face is seen and so on. Right. Or or if you want to like really protect yourself, you know, you send uh, you send uh, you know somebody in your stead. Like we could send Jay. And yeah. be like, hey, Jay's up for it. Jay's got to earn his <laughs> earn his living. Uh, and you could say, you know, I've got these, uh, you know, I've got these paintings that I want to like store here or whatever. And then you can kind of figure out how things work. Um, and typically, typically things like this are going to be like extraordinarily secure against pretty much every kind of threat. Like most of the like, there's going to be Monets that survive like nuclear bombings in these places. But how do they do that? Like, what kind of storage is this? So. Typically, these buildings are like heavily, heavily fortified at, uh, in terms of like concrete and other really strong, uh, like very thick walls and things like that. But then they'll also have things uh, like fire dampening systems so that in the event of a fire, all the oxygen just immediately gets like sucked out of the room so that like fires can't happen there. They're protected against like flooding. They're protected. It's really. And then, like, there's access badging and stuff like that. So they would know that, okay, like, Jay, you know, came in here. He only has access to this. So it's very, like, there's a lot of defense and depth is what we call it. Like, a lot of different layers of security working together. But 
your first step would be trying to, you know, get eyes on and figure out, you know, how these places work or try to find, you know, a security guard that, you know, thinks he could be getting paid more or something like that and try to try to get your way inside that way. That's tricky though, because you can you ever really trust the guy if you're trying to turn a security guard? No, you like it's it's really hard to do. Like that's why a lot of times you have to go like you see in the movies and things like that, but it's not that much of a stretch where like, you know, they have to, you know, really try to get that person in a compromising position and, you know, make them realize that, you know, if, uh, if you turn on me, like what's going to happen to you is worse than what's going to happen if the cops get you. Um, right. It needs to be a combination of like blackmail and bribery. <laughs> exactly. And that's, but there's like that old saying too. It's like, if she'll cheat on you, she'll cheat with you. Uh, or sh if she'll cheat with you, she'll cheat on you. And it's kind of the same thing with, um, with like security people, you really can't trust, you know, if you're going to get somebody to betray their employer and do that, the chances are like, they're not, they're not going to be as loyal to you either. If the cops come uh, and offer them immunity, there's a good chance they're going to give you up. And they might not have access to everything either. Like you'd have to get like a top person who has access to everything. Exactly. And that's like, that's a big, that's a big issue with it. Like that security guard might, you know, be able to open this door, but then everything else is, is here or sometimes in cases like these just like safety deposit boxes that security guard might not have access to your specific or to you know to your room like because you create your own uh unique pin and they don't have that so it's compartmentalizing the risk which is a great strategy but it makes it much harder to to try to steal i feel like this might not be the best place to to try a, our first heist together no like, I, <laughs> no maybe not the first one but that would be that would be the dream to build up to what about like uh like a like a christie's or a sotheby's something like that so those those are probably a bit more doable um there's a lot of uh, a lot of similarly um similarly like um fortified uh places like harry winston in paris is a very secure jewelry store, but the Pink Panthers were able to hit that twice within the span of like two, three months. Oh yeah, you had a good story about that in the book. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's definitely it's definitely possible. Uh, and anywhere there's people, there there's a way to, to you know either manipulate or coerce them or to there's if there's a will, there's a way. I feel like okay, here's a scenario. Let me run this by you. I'm I'm making a pitch. So you let say you go to a, a Sotheby's auction. And you see someone buying, you, you know who the art collectors are. You go to different art conferences, you know who the big collectors are. And sometimes these collectors probably store their art, but sometimes they just want to put the art up in their house because it's beautiful art. They want, they're proud that they have a Monet or, or a Picasso and they put it up there. Uh, and that's probably an easier, it's probably easier to rob their house. And I'm sure they've got all the security, but it's probably easier to rob that than like a Freeport. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's way easier to, once it's in the hands of like a private collector, that's typically going to be easier than the auction house, definitely easier than a, a free port. Um, but then sometimes too, you can think outside the box and, and criminals are starting to, to do this a lot where, you know, do you want, do you want the, the Monet or do you want the $150 million that the Monet is worth? Well, I want the $150 million that the Monet is worth, which brings me to the next question. How do you sell it when everyone knows it's stolen? So that that is typically done through fences, um, and fences are basically like the pawnbrokers of the underworld. So, and 
Uh, again, they're very hard to, um, you know, to find trustworthy ones, but typically that they'll have, you know, pretty, pretty good relationships with people once they're working together for a while. And the best person to buy paintings is typically going to be the insurance company. So you'll see a lot of times, uh, like rewards for pieces, like they'll be like, well, it's way easier to, you know, anonymously turn this in and get the reward money than it is to try to find somebody to, to buy this. I see. So let's say, you know, Mr. Art Buyer um, loses his Monet, you know, through a heist and it's insured for $50 million. You could sell to the insurance company for 20 million probably. And it's probably easier to make that transaction. Like they wired a some invisible account somewhere and it's Im immediately wired out. It's untraceable. And uh, actually, how do you pull that off? Like, how do you make sure that the art and the money happen at the same time. Like how does the insurance company trust the, the, the people who did the crime? So, so that's a very, um, I, I think, I think some of that, I, I misspoke a little bit. Um, a lot of times like these, um, uh, like when I was like saying insurance companies, I was saying like, you're going to get that $50 million from the insurance company. Like if you can prove that it was like stolen and stuff like that. Um, and so, there's there's a lot of people that have you know have paintings stolen so they can collect the insurance money, and then uh, you know later on are able to uh, buy the piece back quietly uh, sometimes or, but yeah it's it's kind of hard to because so many so much of the stuff like is like backroom dealings that it's it's hard to like really nail down like super specifics with that but. Sometimes, like, reward money, like, a lot of times these pieces are being held for, like, ransom against the reward money and things like that as well. So, so, yeah, again, I guess the best buyer is the person you stole from because maybe he or she doesn't want to admit that it was stolen or they want the painting, they spent $150 million on it, maybe they'll buy it for $10 million, $15 million, and just a cost of doing business. And I guess they have to just figure out how to trust the criminal yeah that's definitely that's definitely like one of the uh one of the bigger ways to to do that um a lot of times though like the best thieves or like the smartest thieves at least will typically not steal something without a buyer lined up so like sometimes sometimes people will steal on commission um and say you know i want this specific piece like here's here's whatever the rate is going to be for it um, and so if you could do that, if you have a buyer lined up or if you have like a fence that, you know, you can trust to be able to move stuff like, you know, those are, those are typically going to be the better ones to, to try to go to. Cause it's, it's very hard to like, not a lot of people are going to steal like a Monet without having a, an end game for it first. Well, like why would anyone buy a stolen Monet when everybody in the world is going to know that it's stolen? Well, that's. I mean, I guess that's kind of the definition of like "fuck you" money. If uh, if if you're wealthy enough to to have the ability to do that, like I think some people don't care. But then also, um, because art is such a store of value, they can sometimes sometimes use it for that as well. Um, Even though it's been stolen, like if you if you're discovered with a stolen piece of art, do you have to just return it to the original owner? So th that is a fascinating question and there's no clear answer on that um depending on the the provenance of the piece so um like a good a good example is 
there was a group of people that stole a well they kind of stole um you're you're actually going to love this because it's the most efficient way to do it they didn't even bother stealing the painting they just intercepted the the transaction and were able to like steal the money for the purchase of the painting how were they able to do that like what 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 happened so they they actually employed uh what we call a business email compromise where they um, were able to send a phishing email to an auction house, uh, get the person to, to click on something or download something and install, you know, a backdoor for them to get into their networks. And then they just kind of sat on the networks watching traffic come in and out and being like, okay, this Thomas Constable landscape is going to go up for auction here. You know, here's the buyers and stuff like that that we're thinking about. And then they were basically able to, from that... Uh, from the auction houses or uh, from the gallery's um, own email address, like send something out and say, "Hey, like um, I know you're purchasing this painting today. We just we just changed our the account that the funds are going to be wired to. Please send it to this." Ah. and so they did, and they they got the money. They took off, and now there's like a big legal question about this uh, this gallery. You know paid for the painting they had an agreement they sent the money like they did all the due diligence on their part and the gallery is like well or the the previous owner is like well we didn't get the money for it and so now the like the the painting is actually being held uh like basically an escrow until legally they can determine who gets to have that painting that's ridiculous the auction house should totally take responsibility they or whoever was the intermediary who, who was the intermediary here uh, the auction house. Yeah, so they should totally take responsibility for this. I, yeah, I agree. Like, if your if your cybersecurity is not up to snuff to the point where you get taken for you know twenty million dollars, I think this one was. That's on you. Like, se security costs money. But yeah, like there there are sometimes like legal issues with that. There's another. There's a car in Milwaukee that was like a 1937 uh, Talbot uh, coupe, and it's like beautiful. It's called the Teardrop. And somebody was actually, that was a little bit more of a complex case where somebody broke in, stole the car, and then came back and stole, like, the, the person had, like, a second Talbot um, that was basically just a parts car that he would sell, you know, this fender to this antique dealer because it's very hard to, to get these cars. And uh, he was like, oh, I'd love to buy this, like, car from you, you know, for scrap or whatever. And like got a title signed by the person who had the car stolen from him, but he didn't, uh, but basically forged the document. So it looked like he purchased the, the teardrop uh, car outright from this guy. And so he had a clean title and things like that, but the car was stolen. And so that one is also still in a, a legal limbo because that's like, we don't really know. Mm. Like it, it gets tricky. Like criminals are getting very, very crafty with this stuff. Like, what's the most? I mean, you write about a lot of heists that are current and some historical. Uh, what's the most sophisticated? And then I have some questions about some specific ones. But what's the most sophisticated, like, well done heist you've seen? I, I would have to say the Antwerp diamond heist was definitely up there. Um, that one should absolutely be a movie. Can you um, describe it? Absolutely. The Antwerp diamond heist was pulled off by a group of thieves uh, known as the School of Turin which is just a great name for a group of thieves anyways. Um, but their leader was a, uh, an Italian man named Leonardo Notabartolo. 
And he set up an office in Antwerp. They have, uh, just like New York City has a diamond district, Mm -hmm. Antwerp has the diamond uh, exchange, which is their diamond district, and basically the diamond district for all of Europe. And so he set up a jewelry or like a, like a jeweler's office and things like that. And uh, like we mentioned before, with like the Freeports had a safe deposit box in the diamond exchange. So he could go in there, you know, multiple times a day, put things in, take things out, make himself known, get the trust of the, the people. But he was also, you know, very carefully like casing identifying because they again i think they had like 10 different layers of security on on their vault it was really really impressive um and so he was able to uh hire a like a master key forger an electronics expert um and a couple other uh, a couple other just like top level thieves they ended up breaking in to this insanely complex safe like they uh they installed like little pinhole cameras to see what the combination on the safe was as people were doing it he actually ended up using uh, a can of hairspray the day of the heist he like went in and sprayed the thermal sensors with just you know like suave uh hairspray and that coated uh that coated the sensors so that they couldn't pick up heat um and then there was a magnetic sensor on the door so they they taped that all together so that the the magnets never separated and then just like stuck another magnet with that like to the wall of the vault so that when they opened up the vault door it's still registered as closed like they they had to do a lot of really out of the box thinking with this one uh in order to be able to to get into this vault uh and like two of the keys were like a foot long uh that this guy had to like make copies of and it was just just absolutely like mind-blowing engineering and there wasn't one of these things like in the diamond district in new york if you go into someone's you know place where they're storing diamonds you have to go in a door that locks behind you and then someone in the other room unlocks the next door there wasn't anything like that to there there was um but they they managed to to get past those doors as well um because like um one of the their their keymaker was known as the king of keys he was actually the only person ever caught in this uh hmm. Um, like there's basically just enough evidence like from him to know that he exists, but not to like identify him. Hmm. Um, and, and so what happened? So that, then what happened? So this one is actually really funny because as sophisticated as this crowd, uh, as this gang of thieves was, uh, they, one of the, uh, one of the people in their crew, uh, was this guy whose nickname was Speedy and he was, uh, he was not a very talented thief he was he was just kind of there um they had him drive the car sometimes but he started freaking out um he's like oh we're gonna be get caught and he like they basically on the on the getaway drive back to uh back to italy um he like stopped the car and started dumping out all the trash um that they had you know disposed of and he's like oh we're just on the like some random roadside in italy but ironically enough like this particular like road where they were on where where he was dumping the trash was like a problem area for the farmer who owned the land because people were always dumping trash there. Hmm. And so he saw them and called the police and then they came and saw, you know, envelopes that said Antwerp Diamond District and they were able to find a piece of salami and a receipt for like a corner store for salami. And so this little piece of sandwich and the receipt 
gave them enough to like go and like check the security cameras. They saw like this really tall guy known as the monster by the salami. And from there they were able to to kind of that was the thread that they were able to to keep pulling on and they arrested everybody except the King of Keys. When they arrested them, was did they get all the ca- diamonds back? No, they they got some of the diamonds back, uh, but they did not recover all of them. And because it was nonviolent crimes, a lot of these people are already out of jail now and probably just have stashed potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. I always wonder, like, how many people are alive who they're living in some resort area, they're keeping a low profile, and they made... They never made a dime in their lives, and then they made like fifteen million on some extraordinary heist, and that, and that's the rest of their life. I, you know, it's got to be it's got to be a good number, actually. Like, I, I think the smart ones are the ones that do it once and then just retire off of that. Yeah. Now, you there was one story you wrote that was intriguing. It was the Transylvania uh, book. It was like a heist from a library. Yes. Yes, uh, that one. Uh, that one actually, uh, Transylvania University in, uh, I believe it's Lexington, Kentucky. Um, so there's like University of Kentucky, UK, and then there's also Transylvania University. Um, I would never let my kids apply to Transylvania <laughs> University. That's just like the worst name. <laughs> it, it, it's such a weird, like, but I think that was like that part of Kentucky was originally like, I think Jefferson wanted to call the, the region Transylvania. Hmm. Um, but but like one of the things that's really unique about that school is they have an incredible rare book collection. And some of the some of the books that they have, they had a first edition of On the Origin of Species by Darwin, uh, but they also had a complete set of Audubon's Birds of America. And like this is first edition hand-painted by James Audubon. And the books are enormous. Uh, the, I think each book weighed 75 pounds, and that was a set of four of them. Hmm. Um, and so these, uh, these kids got the, the brilliant idea. They're like, well, this book alone is worth you know, millions of dollars. Let's just go steal, go steal these books. And so, so again, I'm going I'm to ask, like, if you have the, uh, the, the uh, first edition on the origin of species, who's going to buy that knowing it was stolen? Like, it's obviously going to be stolen. <laughs> Well, they actually tried to they tried to fence it through Christie's, and uh, Christie's was able to smell them from a mile away. Like they drove up to New York, had a meeting, and they're like these teenagers. Like they said that it was like their uncle died and like left it to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like pretty much the second they walked out, Christie's called the cops and like these these guys have stolen material. So like, what could you? How could I mean? How could you fence something like that? Like, what do you do? Is there like a dark web for this sort of thing or? So this one is actually really interesting. Um, you could try to do it on the dark web, but again, like you're, like, it's it's very hard to you know verify that what you're buying is authentic. Um, yeah. And so one of the uh, one of the thieves here, he somehow was able to find people online in Amsterdam willing to buy the book, but their stipulation, because again, it's hard to verify things, was. We'll buy it if you can get like Christie's or Sotheby's or somebody you know legitimate to verify its authenticity. And if that happens, we'll pay you you know five million dollars or uh, whatever the whatever the price they had worked out was. And and but the, they went to Christie's. Could they have gone to anyone else like a private verifier? They 
they might have been able to, but I think I think it had to be like Christie's or Sotheby's uh, or like whatever, like some similar tier just because, you know, they're putting the reputation on those books. And that's the kind of like guarantee that you need uh, if you're going to buy something uh, mm-hmm. illegal. So, so they, um, I guess they knew who the librarian was. They went, they were going to the school of these students. They knew who the librarian was. What, what happened then? So they actually, they came up with a plan. Um, and this is like just such a brilliant, like college idiot plan. Um, and so the first, they, they basically came up with an idea to, to go and, you know, go up there, stun the librarian, take the books and and kind of head down, but they they waited until the week of finals, um, which is a terrible time because they also wanted to graduate. Like they were about to graduate, and they're like, "Well, we can't like risk our semester." Um, and so they waited until everybody at the school was at the library. It's like the worst possible time. Yeah, um, finals like college gets up, but then they're like, "Oh, we need disguises." So they they tried to dress up as old men, and the first time they like walked into the library, they're disguises were so bad that everybody just like immediately like stared at them and was like what is up with these guys and so they ended up like leaving because they're like everybody is watching us because their disguises are so bad so they waited until the next day to try again and then at that point uh one of them went upstairs made an appointment to um to view this book because you had to have an appointment to to see the the rare book collection um, and once he was with the librarian, a second uh, second thief came in. They used like a little a stun pen, um, and they were able to subdue this woman um, and like handcuffed or zip tied her on the floor and things like that to try to steal the books. And then uh, one of the problems too is her name was uh, everybody called her BJ, and so they're like, "It's going to be okay, BJ." And so she's like, "Well, this is clearly like a student at the school because they call me BJ." No, but how did the student make an appointment? Wouldn't he have to use his name to make an appointment? He did use his name. So that's another pretty big yeah, indicator. Yeah, that, that was another big indicator. And there was another, uh, somebody else tried to make an appointment um, using a pseudonym, but they did that um, with their dad's cell phone number and uh, with a Yahoo email address that was also uh, like very traceable back to back to like their families. So like, were these people just like really stupid? Like, why would you make an appointment in your own name where you're planning on robbing something right then? Like that is beyond stupid. It, they, they just, they didn't think about anything at all. Like they were, they were very dumb. It was a miracle they got as far as they did. I mean, did they think, so, so they think they would sell on the origin of species and it wouldn't matter what their name was. They would just disappear. Well, I, I don't know that they really thought that far ahead of it. I thought that, I think what they thought was, we just had to steal these books, get them to Christie's, uh, and then get them to Amsterdam. And so they they tried to take like some some basic steps. Like he created a fake email address uh, as well to try to do some of the communication, but he was doing it from his dad's cell phone plan. And so like all the call records and stuff like that, they just called his dad and they're like, hey, like we know you're in New York, uh, and it was it was over very quickly. Man, so. So the, I guess they while they were doing this robbery, though, someone saw them, right, and chased them. Yes, uh, multiple people um, saw them. So they, there was an elevator, um, and they also, like, they didn't really have, like, a plan. So they had, like, backpacks that they stuffed some of the books into once BJ was subdued. 
but they had to use bed sheets to try to seal the Audubon books because they mm. were so large. Mm. And so now you've got, you know, seven or I think like almost 300 pounds of books. Um, if there's four 75 pound books, like in a bed sheet that they're trying to drag to the stairs and then the elevator opens up, they see like another assistant librarian who realizes like, this is not right. And so they, they try to like run and flee and they get lost and basically run through campus looking for the getaway van. And then they get in the van, the getaway driver panics because he borrowed his mom's car for this. And uh, like, basically he's like, you guys have to get out. Like I have to like get this car back to my mom in 20 minutes. And so he kicks him out in like a rough part of town. And then these guys um, who had managed to still steal probably half a million dollars in books because they had the, um, they had the Darwin book. They had a couple other first editions like with them that they ended up taking to, um, to Christie's in New York. Uh, but they almost got robbed just walking around the neighborhood because they're like, what are these guys doing? And so they had to run out of this neighborhood and like find their friends again. It, the whole thing was like, like a comedy movie. But they still made it to Christie's. They did make it to Christie's because they told their parents they were going snowboarding for the weekend. So they just drove straight up had this appointment and like they tried to like dress in like little flashy suits and stuff like that and be like my representative and like they tried to like pretend they were super important and representing like the estate of their beloved dead uncle and Christie's is just like these weird kids for sure stole some stuff and called the police. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, 
ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You wrote about the Harry Winston in Paris where they, I guess the thieves somehow stayed overnight in a stairwell. They were able to get into a stairwell and not get caught and, and stayed overnight. Is that possible to do? Like if I go to a jewelry store, I could just hang out in the stairwell and they'll lock up. I mean, it is, it is possible, but, um, you, you would probably have to do what they did, uh, which was bribe one of the security guards. Mm, and so right. the security guard was able to let them in and then they just sat there basically until the morning because Harry Winston also had uh, a compartmentalized defense and depth uh, procedure to where like the, the store managers, like the opening team didn't have the keys. So they had to, like they could, they had a security guard open the door for them. So they didn't have the actual keys to the outside. And then that manager had to go into their office and grab like the safe keys and then start unlocking everything. So everybody, each person only had one key. So they had to wait for the right person to come. Uh, and then they were able to overpower the manager, take the keys and start, uh, and start the robbery. And then what happened? Um, so for this one, they actually, um, they ended up like spraying down the stairwell to, uh, to cover DNA evidence with a fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were able to basically, I forget the exact dollar amount, but they stole, uh, millions of dollars in diamonds. Uh, I think you said 136 million. I, I, I think it'd be a different one. It might be the, that might be the second one, but because they hit him again, like pretty shortly after, but they were able to basically, um, basically overpower, um, this manager, open the safe, um, steal a bunch of different, you know, luxury timepieces, diamonds and things like that. Um, get everything from like the, the display cases that were about to be put out because all of that stuff is stored in the safe. And then they, they took off. And then uh, a couple months after that, I think it was, it might've been like six weeks, they came back dressed as women um, and knocked on the door, got inside during business hours right before close. And one of the attackers actually like reached into his purse and pulled out a hand grenade. Wow. And then was able to get upstairs into the office. And this is another one where they, they had to have an inside, uh, like some sort of inside person because they even knew about the false bottom of the safe where um, this particularly large green diamond was being, uh, was being held. And they were able to, uh, to pull that one off as well. And what happened to them? Uh, with that one, oh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember. I believe a couple people did get arrested for that because um, I know that one of the thieves, 
said the other thief's name. Like one, oh, yeah, Farid, I think. Yeah, Farid. He was like, we got to go Farid. But the other person just called themselves Voldemort because they, they were smart enough to have a, a secret identity. Um, and even better if it's, you know, the name you should not say. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they basically were able to, um, to identify this Farid individual. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly how. Um, oh, yeah, they... they they had the security guard, right? They had an inside guy, and the police noticed that this is the one guy who wasn't hurt um, when they broke in both times. Exactly, and and that person was the um, because they had security guards on random shifts. Um, this was the security guard working both times, so that uh, they they figured out pretty quickly it could not be a coincidence. Now it, it must be easier to sell diamonds that you steal because unless it's like a big green diamond and called the famous green diamond, like other diamonds sort of look like, okay, it's just 30 carats of diamonds. It's cut. Uh, you know, unless it's really special, it's, it's not going to be noticed by. Well, there, there are some, like that's typically true. It's also way easier to, to store huge amounts of money in diamonds. Like you can fit a billion dollars in diamonds, probably in like, if you're wearing cargo pants easily, um, but like, if you're just wearing jeans, you can, you know, millions of dollars, uh, without anybody even noticing. Um, but I, some of the diamonds, uh, nowadays, like they're, they're starting to protect them by laser etching serial numbers inside mm -hmm. the diamond. Uh, and so a lot of times what's happening, uh, especially with like these larger stones is they're getting stolen. Uh, but then in order to be able to, you know, to move them, uh, they actually have to recut and like downsize them so you might take you know a 10 diamond or 10 carat diamond and in order to make sure that like the serial number is gone or that it's not like traceable by carat weight or any of the other identifying uh factors like you know it might by the time it's done be a six carat diamond i see so but still they're 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 getting a lot of money from from these things although you know diamonds are sort of weird because they don't really retain their sale value they're sort of marked up by the jeweler from the beginning. So you have to, if, if a million dollar diamond might only be worth like $50,000, $100,000 wholesale. Exactly. And so, um, so finding the, the right buyers is typically a big pro, uh, process of that. And I don't know if I should say this or not, but I'm, I'm going to. Uh, did you see the Tinder swindler? I didn't actually. I want to see that. I heard it's good. It's it's very good. But one of the identities, um, because this guy is a con man, and like one of the identities that he like claims to, you know, to be, is the son of a Russian uh, like jeweler named uh, Lev Lviv. And there is speculation, um, and I'm trying to say this very definitively, so I don't get uh, don't get killed. Uh, because it, it tends to happen. Um, but there's a lot of people that suspect that perhaps that jewelry house is involved in a lot of uh, illegal activities. And like, because um, they were also hit by a Pink Panthers heist. And, uh, and then somebody kind of noticed and had, like the secretary fell out of a window. Um, but, but there's like a lot of rumors that like, you know, these diamonds are like getting stolen. The insurance money is being collected. And then they're being recut because this person moves so many diamonds that you know it doesn't notice and uh, or it doesn't really register because they're like, of course, this guy has you know a bunch of diamonds. Yeah, so so it's interesting. So 
you've researched so many of these heists and robberies and everything. Again, what do you think you would do? It seems like if you had to rob an institution, like a bank, an art gallery, one of these free ports, that's too difficult because security is their job. Like their whole job is to secure this wealthy stuff. But it seems like the customers, again, might not be as secure in their homes or whatever, whether it's jewelry or art or something, anything of value. So it seems like that would be, if you were going to do a physical robbery as opposed to like a cyber heist, which you just also talk about cyber heist as well. But if you're going to do a physical robbery, it seems like a home robbery is the, is the best. Home robberies are probably, uh, are probably the best. Um, just in terms of, you'd have to find the right homes and things like that. But museums are also like shockingly easy to steal from. Like, well, how, how would you steal from a museum? So, um, like some, some of them, like if you wanted to steal like from the Met, for example, in, in New York, uh, those paintings, like they're not bolted to the wall. So if you're able to, you know, hide in a bathroom or stay after hours or something like that, um, you'd still have to, you know, have uh, the getaway things take it uh, like into consideration. So you might have to have like somebody like pull up at like the right time and stuff like that. But a lot of those, you can just, you know, basically walk up to the art, take it off the wall and maybe cut like a, a steel wire because they don't want to risk damage to the the paintings themselves. Like they're, and because they get moved for like restorations and things like that. Sometimes like they're not actually like glued to the walls. Or, you know, it made me think like near the museums, there are people who are framers who frame the art for the museums. I would think even better to go to a framer Absolutely. I, any anytime, anytime that something is in transit, that is the best time to hit it. So if it's getting framed at the, like the framer is going to have worse security than the museum is. So if you can get it while it's at the framer or on its way from the framer to the museum, that's, that's a good way to do it. If there's like a paint, like a restoration shop, those are, those are like, you know, very valuable targets because they could potentially be working on, you know, several high dollar um, items. And typically the restoration shops are again, not going to have museum level security. I feel though like the, like the, the smoothest heist these days are cyber. Like if you could basically convince somebody about your Nigerian airport, for instance, and you write about that, that's like the best way to do something. I've almost been fooled by one of those, like a very high level, like seven figure, eight figure number not to me personally, but like to a hedge fund that I knew about. And only at the last minute, I was able to help them avoid getting scammed. Like somebody claimed to have Twitter shares that he wanted to sell. This was before Twitter went public. So he wanted to sell these Twitter shares at a big discount to where Twitter was going to eventually go public. It, it, it all sounds ridiculous in retrospect, but he claimed to be the son of a doctor to one of these Saudi kings or whatever. And he produced paperwork and evidence and he produced paperwork and evidence that the Twitter shares were his. But then I knew the CFO of Twitter. So the hedge fund asked me to call the CFO and he had no idea what was going on. So we kind of knew that the scam was happening. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how, how often stuff like that happens. Like even just in the past two weeks, like you really have to be careful with that stuff. Uh, there's been so many, like that That almost sounds again like business email compromise, but that's, um, you know, it's kind of, 
uh, you're, you're a computer, uh, a computer science background. So, yeah. you know, one of the first things you do is you map the data flow and you figure out, okay, these pieces of this program interact with this and this is how it gets there. And if you can figure out how to insert yourself into that flow somehow, um, like based on like the timing and, and things like that, um, it's, it's happening a lot because people, uh, one thing that's happening is, uh, like hackers are getting much more patient. And so a lot of times they're sitting on networks sometimes for a year or two without being detected uh, and just kind of figuring out, okay, like this person is going to make this transaction or this event is happening in the news. And they just really at this point have to wait for the right time. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, have you had people contact you either because they wanted your advice on making a heist or they want to make a movie and they want you as a consultant? <laughs> I've, I've been reached out for, for a couple projects like that. Um, luckily, it has been more of like the, the consulting than it has been like, you know, people asking me to commit crimes. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's, there's definitely no shortage of that. And there's also uh, like I've helped a couple businesses um, that were like, clearly about to get scammed by by somebody um like like friends of uh like friends of family that were talking about like oh this is weird i'm like oh you need to stop right now because if you hit that button like you're you're out like thousands of dollars yeah it's scary how much of that is going on like apparently i don't know there's some like ridiculous number of emails that come out of let's say you know nigeria they have a specific name for these scams so i'll just use nigeria it's like a 409 or 419 scam because that's the uh, co code in the law. And it's these emails like, oh, I'm the son of a Nigerian prince who died, but now I need some money to unlock 20 million, which I'll share with you. But uh, they send out like millions of emails and per one hit, successful hit. Well, I mean, it's really, it really is just a numbers game because these, they don't have to be sophisticated. Uh, like it's better when they are like, um, but it's it's a volume game. Like even like the old like uh, the old uh, emails that you would get for like uh, like off market like Viagra or Cialis that you were getting like you know thousands of like phishing and like spam emails. Like somebody is clicking on those. Like somebody doesn't realize that this like strange looking email that they didn't sign up for is a scam. They just you know care about getting this medication for you know twenty dollars cheaper. Um, or whatever the case is, and only one person has to do it. You know, you get a couple hundred dollars, but these people, if you can get one-tenth of one percent to do it, but you're sending out 10 million emails instantaneously, that's, you know... That's yes, 10,000 email successes. So let's say you make $100 on each one, that's $10 million. Yeah, and it doesn't, and you don't even have to, like, try that hard. So, so let me see, I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of these heists bookmarked um, oh, there was the Super Bowl ring one, but that was done by the same people that did one of the another one. I forget which one. They yeah, they did a, a bank heist in Ohio where they started all the money on fire. Oh yeah, that's right. But they still got away with three million dollars cash. They did. Um, it's crazy though because that was like mostly coins mm. uh, that they were able to get away with, which is like I don't even know what you do with three million dollars of coins. I don't think I'd want it. What do you do with a Super Bowl ring? Again, there's the question of like, who do you sell a Super Bowl ring to? Well, for that, I mean, there's a there's a few things with that. Like, you could mo most likely those were going to get smelted down um, because you know if that's pure gold and like you know each diamond. I think I think for those ones, like they had like you know forty five diamonds in them. 
uh, or like different precious stones. Like you can you can scrap all of that and like the, make it easier to move. You're not going to be able to sell it as a Super Bowl ring, but you can sell it, you know, as the materials for the Super Bowl rings. Gosh, that seems like a a, a hard way to make a you know a little bit of gold. How much gold is there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for for something like that, probably like maybe two ounces would yeah, be my guess. That's not a lot. So it's probably better ways to steal gold. So uh, you should like write a novel, like uh, or or a movie script or something, with your knowledge of heist. Like you could probably plan a pretty pretty good one. I would love to do that. I, I, that might actually be the next project I start working on. It's just trying to figure out like a fun way to do it. Like what about all the like? There's a whole bunch of gold underneath the Federal Reserve in New York City. Like so, no one's ever tried to to get that, I guess, because it's buried underground. But yeah, that one is like that was a really good. That's my favorite Die Hard movie, actually. Oh, I didn't even know it was a Die Hard movie. Yeah, I just know they, about the gold. Um, but like the the vault for the Federal Reserve, I actually used to work there. Um, You're kidding? No, no. I that was my first information security job. Um, but like the vault there is like insane. Like you're. It really would take an act of war to to get in there, because um, they 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 really don't play around with that. And it's like the actual the entire vault rotates. So it's not like you have a vault door. It's like the entire vault rotates within the uh, within the building to be able to uh, to be able to access it. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, well, what any other heist uh, come to mind that are like? super sophisticated and the guys made off with a billion dollars. What's the biggest heist people have escaped with that you know of? Oh, as far as escape, that's a good question. Uh, because I feel like, I feel like the, the key word there is that you know of, because there's definitely people that have done huge, um, huge heists, but then you never hear about them because they were very smart. Right. Um, there's been a lot of crypto exchanges lately. Like, I, I don't know if that counts as, that's less of a heist. That's more of like fraud. But a lot of these people are starting uh, cryptocurrency exchanges and then they're just taking off with all the money. Um, that's definitely happened like in the NFT world where people will do a whole NFT drop, raise a whole like millions of dollars and then literally admit, like they'll say, thanks everybody, we're out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy how much that's changing the world of crime. Because for, for years, like Bernie Madoff was the guy for... Uh, like the largest financial fraud in in history, at least that like people knew about. Like, yeah, and he sold, you know, I think like what was it, like five billion dollars or or close yeah, to about it. that. Yeah. Um, but now, like this this year, um, there was a crypto exchange uh, fraud that's like they're still figuring out. But it was like like a twenty year old woman who had like a failed YouTube rapping career. Yeah, and she is now responsible for the largest financial crime in human history. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual heist uh, was in 2016, but of course, you know, crypto has gone up a lot since then. So it was originally like a $60 million heist and it's turned into a $4.5 billion heist uh, because, but but the problem, with not the problem, but the, the issue with crypto is that it's actually harder than people think to launder because everybody could see, because all transactions are recorded along something called the blockchain, people could see where the money went. And so they had to figure out how to move it without you know, letting people know who they are. 
Exactly. And that's, that's – because um, that was always the big thing. And they're like, oh, it's anonymous. So like, yeah, but anonymous or anonymity and privacy are not the same thing. Right. You know, so it's – everybody knows, like, this account – like, that's why NFTs are were, like, outed so quickly for being scams because people were able to very quickly figure out, okay, wallet number A – just you know, purchase this NFT for twenty million dollars, and then immediately wallet number A wired the money back to to this other wallet that keeps doing this, and so they were able to figure out that all these NFT guys were basically inflating the prices by buying the NFTs from themselves, and then they could be like, oh well, I've got a twenty million dollar NFT, but I I suppose I could let it go for two million uh, to try to, but the. I mean, the blockchain, they, it, it keeps the receipts and people are able to just look and be like, well, I can, I can see that you bought it from yourself or that somebody bought it and then gave themselves the money back. Like, even if I can't prove it was you, I know what happened. Yeah. Well, here, here's another thing. Uh, this is one that, that I wasn't, I unfortunately was a victim of in this is like 2016 or something where this it was a, it seemed like a legit project. This guy was creating his own cryptocurrency that was going to be what's called a stable coin. It was going to be linked to a basket of currencies. So it seemed like a really interesting project. He raised two hundred million dollars, and then like six months later, he said, "Listen, we're not able to make this. Too many regulatory issues. Whatever. Um, we're going to return ninety nine percent of it. We're going to turn one hundred ninety million to you. We raised two hundred million. We're going to turn one hundred ninety. And so no one complained." Because they got, you know, it's very rare you, something doesn't work out and you get almost all of your money back. So everybody got like ninety percent of their money back. But then there's always the question: What did they, what did they do with that ten million? <laughs> like this, that's a lot of money still. But like for me, I had only put in like a very small amount, so it didn't matter to me. But some some of the bigger investors were were asking the question, and there's no answers. Yeah, the guys just said like, "Oh, we hired developers. It's gone." So that's so funny. Like, what's so funny about that? Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. But it's just amazing to see how people continually reskin old scams. Yeah. Uh, because that scam itself um, was pulled off by uh, Victor Lustig, who's my favorite con man of all time. He pulled that exact same con on Al Capone for fun. Because like he, he was on the run from Europe because he had sold the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal twice. Uh, so he was like, I need to cool off in the, uh, in the U.S. for a little bit and was going around committing a bunch of crimes. And he gets to Chicago and he's like, I bet I could steal money from Al Capone. So he goes up to him like, with this like, business plan um, because he was also like a prolific counterfeiter. And he was like, I've got this idea. I need a $50,000 investment from you to be able to make this work, but I can give you like, you know, 200% back in like three months or whatever the, the stakes were. And he just sits on the money for, for like two months. And then he comes back to him and says, you know, I'm so sorry. Um, the, the arrangements that I had fell through. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do this, but I wanted to tell you in person and give you your money back because, you know, I, I would never cheat you, Al Capone. And uh, like basically did this whole sob story about like how like trying to do this like financially ruined him. And Al Capone felt so bad for him that he gave him $5,000. <laughs> And then he just walked out with like $5,000 of Al Capone's money, just clean. Like, and he just did it for the love of the grift. So it's always fun to see like how these things, because like the Nigerian email scams are just a reskin of like what used to be called the Spanish prisoner scam. 
where people would pretend like, oh, well, I'm writing on behalf of the Spanish prisoner, Prince, whatever. Uh, he's looking for people, like kind of like when Napoleon was on Elba, trying to like, gather an army of the faithful. Mm-hmm. And so these people would like try to lend money to get get the Spanish prince's favor. And then same thing happened in Nigeria. And now it's an email. And it just, it's the same five scams. I wonder if we'll hear about like after all this Ukrainian Russia stuff is hopefully over soon. I wonder if we'll hear about scams relating to the Ukrainian charities and so on. I mean, oh, I don't absolutely. think, I don't think they're a Ukrainian charity is a scam. I'm not saying that. I'm saying people posing here as representing a charity might be a scam. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's definitely already happening. It's going to be crazy to see which ones. Yeah. Um, by and large, but that's yeah, that's a guarantee. Anytime there's a tragedy, people are going to try to um, like. That's why, like, I, I GoFundMe shouldn't exist. Like, like I, I get the I get the the need for it and stuff like that. But so many people use it to try to you know uh, to commit some sort of fraud. Yeah, like like I in at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of restaurants and comedy clubs were doing GoFundMe's. Hey, support our employees. But there would just be like one employee who was setting it up, and I wonder how many of those like it, the money actually got distributed to all the employees. Oh yeah, probably. There were probably a bunch of people that were able to to just cut the money and like run with it. Yeah. Well. Pete Stegemeyer, S-T-E-G-E-M-E-Y-E-R. I'm spelling it out because you could buy your book, Heist, an inside look at the world's 100 greatest heights, cons and capers, from burglaries to bank jobs and everything in between. You could buy it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. So it's a nice cover, actually. You could buy this uh, nicely printed up also. Thank you. Thank you. I I was really happy with it. I... It was such a cool thing to to get to be able to to work on, especially because I didn't plan on it. It just kind of fell on my lap. But like sometimes, like you get opportunities, you just gotta run with it and see what happens. You know so much now. You gotta write like a script or an outline or something to use this. I definitely will. Yeah, I, I I'll definitely like. I think that's gonna be the next because uh, I've got a couple ideas. All right. Well, thanks once again, Pete, for coming on the podcast. And anytime you have want to come on and discuss current heists or anything like that, just let me know and you're, you're always a welcome guest. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, being back here. It was a great time. Thank you, Pete. All right. Thank you.